Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. With this podcast, I got to sit down with theatre maker Dylan Ty and talk through the facts and fictions of his production of Pasolini's Salo Redubbed on the Peacock stage. Dylan talks about middle-class outrage, ethical questions, and how real honesty is subversive. I'm keeping this intro intentionally brief, as there's a lot in here, and what Dylan discusses cannot be edited down to a neat soundbite or an easy quote. There are spoilers in here from the get-go, but I think we all know already how history plays us out and repeats and repeats until we reboot our humanity. Enjoy this podcast. Dylan, you said that you have tried to forget this project for 10 years. Why so? And what tipped you over the line to create and make this project in the end? I had the idea originally when I was studying in Italy, I think it was 1997, I was doing a degree in Italian in Trinity. I went to Bologna on Erasmus, and I think it was very close to that time when um, many of the revelations were coming out about the beginning to this kind of tsunami of revelations was was beginning. Um, and I, 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 I've somehow juxtaposed with that, I became aware of Pasolini's work when I was in Italy, and I was I did a film course with quite a well-known film critic, Antonio Costa, who was who knew Pasolini. And it was a, a course about neo-realist neo cinema. And um, I came across his work and from researching it a little bit, I came across this film. So somehow around that time, for um, the film and that kind of social history that was emerging in Ireland began to somehow dialogue with each other in my mind. I don't quite know what the, I can't pinpoint it exactly where I had the, the, um, the epiphany that, that that was what I was going to do. Um, you know, with the film, and that was what what purpose I was going to put it to. But but those those two things started to um, to play off each other, and particularly I think it was around the reaction because I think when you first come to this film, what's what's most talked about really is the reaction to the film, which more than the film itself. You read a lot about where it was banned and the, the countries it was banned in. It's being I think it's it's still banned at the moment in Russia and China, as far as I know. Um, I think it was uh, received a certificate finally in the UK in around two, uh, I think 2000 on video. So there is a lot of you know there's a lot to read about the actual uh, the reception of the film more than the film itself. Um, and I suppose I began to reflect really on that question of what does it mean to be outraged by a representation by by uh, you know and I think Pasolini is quite at pains in the film in an almost Brechtian way to demonstrate to the audience that what we are watching is fake. You know, there are very many signifiers of, you know, and the film is so theatrical in its own way, which lends itself, you know, then so easily to the theatre because, you know, it's built, it's built around these storytelling set pieces, which are so like a stage. So, you know, or, or as has been said, actually, as a premonition of Italian trash TV, with people, you know, with kind of naked, naked women uh, uh, on both sides of a kind of weird stage where people are telling lurid stories about um, whatever. So I began to reflect on 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 that on that question, and I, I still think that now, actually, now has come back as one of the most interesting questions about the recep reception to the, my project. Is that um, to what extent? there is a kind of middle-class outrage around a representation, um, but much less of an outrage around the actual facts, really what I'm trying to get at with the, with the project. 
there's layers of theatricality in this project. As an audience member coming in, you're going to, what we have is that the, the 1975 film is playing in the background and mm -hmm. there's a bank of actors redubbing with a revised text, which lends a distance and a depth to it. With the film, uh, the viewer's eye is led. With theatre, it's, it's expansive. Where do you want the audience's focus to lie? I think it depends. It's uh, it depends on uh, on different points. I think at different points, um, in the beginning, I'm really quite um, clear that the focus needs to be on the film. That we don't need to, you know, the the actors are very. So we have essentially, which the audience doesn't see. There is a monitor behind the audience, which the actors are following for sync. A large plasma screen at the back of the peacock, and then on on stage they have these little small monitors roughly equivalent to like an iPad where they can actually see the film in quite close proximity for a close sync. So at the, for I think about the first 15, 20 minutes, um, the actors are watching the film in close up and they're focused on those screens so that we are observing them, I suppose, observing the film. And I suppose that's another layer of us observing um, th them performing our own history about us, which is being reflected. So I suppose there's that there, and there are a lot of mirrors in the film, but that's that's a kind of um, transposition, let's say, of those mirrors with those which are very prominent in the film in the in the incredible design. Um, but but yes, yeah, so in the beginning, I think the audience, you know, I want the audience to very much because there's a lot to take in. You know, you're looking at, or certainly in the beginning, you're looking at me speaking Italian, dubbing Pasolini, who's you know, silently um, on screen speaking Italian, but also it's not, I'm not talking in the character of Pasolini, but talking in the, essentially in the character of myself, um, setting out my stall about what you're going to see in the project. I, I suppose a kind of expanded program note or DVD extra really playing on this idea of the DVD or the film, um, how people really consume fil the film itself, which you, most people would watch on DVD or whatever. And I suppose the DVD extra is a little bit becoming a little bit phased out now. But I kind of like the convention. It also like it also is, it also is just a little bit of a juxtaposition of, um, or or it undercuts the the ver the seriousness of the of what we are going to watch. I suppose for what we're going the task we are going we are faced as viewers for the next two hours. When you talk, I suppose, about humour, what would you say is the tone of the film and where is the place of humour in the film, mm. but also in this production? I think the tone of the film and the tone of the production of my version are not necessarily similar. The, the, um, but there are, I suppose, and it has been remarked on, there are farcical elements, you know, which are undeniable. There are camp or farcical elements in the um, the film itself, which are very curious, there there, there is humor in there in the film in a way that, it, but it's not it's not really it, it's a more grotesque kind of humor than than I suppose my version really making this trans, this Irish transposition is was clear that I think in order to really speak to the audience, I think so humor is just so much of how we process information and uh, and I think it was very important to and also in, in the room to 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 for want of a better word, exploit those possibilities of humour so that you can you can have a release at a, you know, a certain moment without detracting either from the film or without undermining or in any way, um, you know, in, in any way um, parodying what, what is being said because the material is always very serious. But I think there are moments in the film and maybe perhaps that was Pasolini, what Pasolini was also doing was that they were, they were moments of 
lightness which which the audience could i suppose latch on to um you know in the midst of a, a, a large amount of non um, light moments on those non light moments there's there is a risk involved making theater out of sensitive material and of from survivor testimony how do you consider and counterbalance that risk i think the most important thing for me really was to um get a very firm grasp on the facts first. So for me, the first before I even thought of, thought of exactly how they would be presented was really understanding the material. Um, I, you know, reading all of the reports, see that in the program, but there's a large bibliography of references from reports and from industrial, from the industrial school rules from the 1870s, which obviously interestingly pre predate the state, which is another, you know, interesting element. Um, but going through Magdalene Laundries, um, there's a report on symphysiotomy, um, a report on, um, there is testimony from direct provision, there's direct testimony from psychiatric institutions. So I suppose first I really wanted to um, analyze the material. That's why it took a very long time if we were talking about that 10 year period. You know, there, there was a, a long period where I was um, really just getting a grasp on the facts of, of that history and looking back on it and trying to trace it, really trace the kind of genealogy of that experience, of that history from the beginning of the state, particularly until now and looking at what are, you know, what's the history, but also how, where does it resonate now in what we're doing, replicating, how are we replicating it now? Um, in terms of, you know, I also use stuff later from um, the report on, into family hubs um, with particularly poignant material, uh, some of that becomes dialogue in the film. Um, so, I mean, to that end, I, I was uh, clear that I needed to find a way to to really research the project very thoroughly. So I was able to. I was very lucky to be awarded the Trinity Creative Challenge Award in 2018, which allowed me to. My proposal really was to to work on the project in the Trinity Library uh, in dialogue while I was in Trinity with um, six academics. So, yeah, so I, I spent, you know, I was in Trinity from, I think, January 2018 to around November 2018 when I presented a work in pro and a very early kind of half an hour work in progress of, of the work. But, but so, so a lot of it was working on the drafts of the script, but in dialogue with those academics where I would ask them questions. I suppose they acted as, in a way, kind of surrogate dramaturgs, in a way, where I could ask them tease out some of the ethical questions, but exactly what you're talking about, about the risk and um, of using the material. And I suppose certain things became apparent to me. One was, you know, they're in the public domain and anonymized. So that was the first concern. There's a carefulness, obviously, that goes into your work mm. and, and clearly very conscientious about handling it. But there is a responsibility. There is a responsibility, for sure. Particularly with some of the later stuff, which is, which is um, more recent with the direct provision. Um, material which comes from a Facebook page which is run by some activists uh, where people in indirect provision post stories about their current experience so I contacted them um, through um, a very interesting artist who I've been talking to quite a lot and been inspired a lot by his work Vukashin Nadelkovic who's an artist um, who has a project called the Asylum Archive where he's been mapping the history of direct provision and now the emergency accommodation centres in an extraordinary project and an extraordinary book which came out last year. Um, so he was able to put me in touch with the people who were um, the moderator of that page who gave me permission to use that material. So 
Um, but at the same time, still with that material, I was very clear and um, careful to anonymize it as much as possible. There's no references to where it is, who the person is, what their name is, you know. So, so in a way, all of these testimonies begin to bounce off each other. You know, you you start you. And some of the testimony stuff became, uh, or some of the report stuff, not necessarily the personal testimony, but some of the real reports became dialogue in the film. So in the beginning, um, when in Pasolini's film, um, the libertines, you know, in, when they round up all of these youths and uh, in this bit in this villa, they tell them they they read them the the rules of the riot act of how they're going to be treated in the house, which is really quite faithful to Desad. And Pasolini was really a lot of it's taken almost verbatim from Desad. Um, but in my version, I transpose that with the with a mixture of the industrial school rules from 1870 and the rules from the reception and integration agency for asylum seekers. And when you read both of them together, they're almost identical in how they are phrased. So you start to, you, you know, over all of these reports and the, you, you, I'm not talking about the testimony because that's separate, but but the reports particularly, it's written in a kind of, you know, there's a kind of civil servant, bureaucratic, um, very middle class tone, which is, um, which goes across all of these reports, which I think is tested, which is, which is juxtaposed then, which is contrasted then very sharply with how the, the, the first person testimony comes across from those reports. Even when you read the Ryan report and you read this, I mean, excellently written uh, report, but you know, the, the, the register of the testimony is very different. And in many, many cases, very obviously, they're very obviously working class voices, which I think is also very interesting. So the, so the form of the report, the, the form of these reports themselves tells a very interesting story, that they are written by the middle class, you know, quoting the vulnerable, the poor, the working class, always as kind of um, tested as uh, witnesses but never really the authors of the, you know, which is, which is very interesting as well to reflect on. Um, but yeah, there is a, but there is a great responsibility and um, it's obviously a final, it's a balancing act to get, you know, it, it is never, I think the, the, the ethical questions around Pasolini's film were very alive when he was making the film. I think they're still, they're still alive now. And you know what what happens when you juxtapose when you juxtapose that very real testimony, you know, with very challenging or graphic um, images. Um, I suppose my essential point being, and and what I've tried to come back to with with um, my own ethical um, soul searching around those questions, is really that always kind of always trying to come back to the facts. Uh, and to remember that you know the 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 facts of the, the the facts that are as are revealed in these reports and the testimony are much worse than what's in Pasolini's film, and that essentially is is I think what 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 anchors it and it anchors the use of that of that material. I find the film difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. The more that I wanted to look away, the more I mm -hmm. made myself stay with it and bear witness. Yep. But the moments I found most difficult were the accounts of abuse from mm. the Ryan Report and the voices from direct provision mm. and, and the names of the asylum seekers uh, and migrants who have died and mm. not statistics, but names. Mm. And, and as you say, there there's a lot of hoo-ha about the film and the parallels are very striking, mm. but, but the facts are more horrifying than fiction. Indeed, and actually something which just reminded me there that that, that when in much later in the, in the, you know, when we segue into this 
I suppose the last story there, I think seven, there are eight storytelling uh, set pieces and the last one, um, you know, I suppose they, they move through, they start with the industrial schools, Magdalene Laundry, Symphysiotomy, Psychiatry, um, Prison, and we move then towards direct provision. So we're kind of moving through the ages really, you know, and, and for me that was important that the, that the final one was brought up to date. You know, the, the penultimate one is the direct provision, which brings it up to, you know, and the dates are read in the production. I think it's 20, um, I think it's 2016 or 17, I can't, I can't remember the precise date, but it's, it's, it's contemporary. And the, then the, the, um, the list of migrant deaths, which is a list which is, which is um, being updated all the time by an NGO um, registering all of these deaths in the Mediterranean from you know policies of fortress Europe and and I suppose in difference to what I was saying about the anon being careful to be to anonymize the, those uh, details is that those those that report is very specifically specific if you know what I mean it's important that we know who that person is it's not just a statistic it's not just you know, boy from Mali died in um, in on the the border with France or whatever it was. We get their name. We get, you know, the, so so. I think it really humanizes that that um, that what we see or what we choose to see as a kind of large mass of um, people, which we're, we're presented as kind of statistics. You know, but I suppose that's you know, it, it, for me, it kind of chimes horrifyingly with that quote of Stalin when he said that you know. The death of one person is a tragedy, but the death of a million is a statistic. And I think as long as we see these things as statistics, we can't. I think we need to return to the dignity of the human being, the individual, and to remember that is somebody we know. And that, and I suppose, hopefully, the juxtaposition with the with what we know from our own history is that some of those people were our friends, our sisters, our brothers, our cousins, who could ease, who who could, by the same token, easily be the, the person who is escaping um, from wherever to, to try and get to Europe. There's no difference. I see no difference whatsoever with somebody in Syria um, trying to escape, um, being barrel bombed by Assad and getting out of, getting out of their country on a speedboat to Greece and, and um, dying in the Mediterranean to, with, with our, you know, we went to we were famine ships, coffin ships, um, emigration to London, people dying in hostels in the 50s, 60s, alcoholism, suicide. You know, I just think when we when we start to get down to the to the real, just just the bare facts, and um, we start to see really that this. Um, I think that's what's most uncomfortable is that we start to see there is nothing that separates us from the people who we are in a way constantly now, even more so. And that's another, I suppose, big element of the film is really this contemporary resonance and this resurgence of fascism and fascist thought, which we are um, seeing in our own country very, very much with, with um, our own government, with um, the way we're presented issues around um, direct provision. You know, we're told even today, yesterday in the Dáil, that people are free to leave and all of these, the exact phrase that Varadkar uses, which was used to, to describe the Magdalene Laundries. So we're, we're again trying to abstract people, you know, into these kind of groups of, um, groups of people that we can begin, or and warlike travelers, which is very, another strand of the film as well, which is a, a, a related, very much related to some of that, that social history, but, but has its own unfortunate chapter, you know, has its own filing cabinet of abuses, which, which are very specific, which are very specifically targeted against traveller ethnicity and traveller identity and traveller 
um, survival, let's say, as, a, as an ethnic group. Unrecognized as a ethnic group until very recently. But, but so I, it was important for me to, for, as it went on, to, um, to honor that, that the specificity of that report, that those details exist. Um, but precisely for that reason, to really make us reflect on that is happening, you know, we're sitting in the theater right now, that list is being constantly updated. So while we're sitting in the theater, there could be, you know, as I said, there's a hundred and whatever, 15 children in one of the things that died in a boat. Uh, it's happening right now. And it has a resonance in our own immediate sphere where we're being told that people, in, in, you know, people seeking um, international protection are free to leave or they're, they have, you know, an agency which is absolutely denied to them. And, and to, to, um, to suggest that that agency exists is, for me is offensive. It's absolutely disgusting. It's vomit-inducing. And unfortunately, we have to listen to that day in, day out by kind of PR-trained um, politicians who, and Fianna Gael politicians who spew this nonsense day in, day out. And unfortunately, um, it's presented as our reality. But I... Considering all that goes on in this production, another aspect of my own reaction to it, uh, which caught me by surprise and, and made me uncomfortable, was the discarding of the tricolour. Mm. Uh, and when you talk about vomit-inducing, uh, I know this is, you brought this up in previous work. Mm. Um, so throughout this production, I'm feeling a lot of shame and very mm. little pride. Mm. You've answered some of that there already, but in, in what regard or with what regard do you hold Ireland? I mean, I, I suppose it's trying to look at it in a, in a very un-nostalgic way, you know, trying to look at, if we, and if the film at the first subtitle, you know, said, you know, Pasolini's film is, is dealing with a very short period during the end of the Second World War, obviously when Mussolini's fasc last fascist Republic of Salo, which was a puppet state sponsored by the Nazis, was, was in operation in northern Italy while the southern, well, from Rome down it, was, it was, had been occupied by the Allies. So the Allies were moving north, but, but this, this was kind of Mussolini's last stand where he was taken out of retirement essentially by the Nazis to, um, to spearhead this new version of the fascist state, the Italian Social Republic. Um, but I suppose, and, and my subtitle translates that really, you know, it says 1922 to um, 2019, you know, Ireland during the Church-State Family Finance Alliance. And that's really, you know, there, the, I suppose, what I see as the four pillars, the, the nexus of, of, um, of complicity, of, of conspiracy, if, if you like, or of mutual uh, benefit, which I think has underpinned inequality in Ireland and continues to do so, really, in, a very, in exactly the same way as it did at the beginning in 1922. This is exactly the way that it's doing now. I suppose how I see it is, I suppose, and, and that's Pasolini's point as well, there is a, there's a bitterness or a, there is a nihilism or a disappointment in his version of how Italy turned out. You know, this, this fascist movement deformed Italian values. It deformed the legacy of the beauty of the art of Dante, of, of Boccaccio, of, of Petrarch, and, and took these things and, and, and um, deformed them in a way which was grotesque and which he saw and which had horrible consequences for for Italians and for and still is a, has a legacy today very much it's still a very live I think we're seeing now in Italy a resurgence of, of, of fascism which really never really went away but just changed changed shape in a way in a way um, so how I see Ireland I think really is um, 
again, uh, you know, uh, uh, an ideal which I think um, was, you know, the, an ideal of, of um, egalitarian liberty, of, of progressiveness, which was hijacked, really. And the state was hijacked by conservative forces in the, va in the vacuum of the beginning of the early state, particularly, I, I think, probably connected to its, you know, the economic position and is why a lot of these institutions which predated the state ended up as, I suppose, in a way, a surrogate social welfare system, which is essentially how the state exploited those institutions. They were things they didn't have the money or didn't want to have the money to spend on or in many cases just simply didn't have the money. So they were outsourced to the church particularly, um, but not only. I mean, and that's what I mean. Also, at pains to really try and try to avoid in the show is is this easy target of the church which I think is one massive element and I think it's become a very large element of the cultural narrative around institutions but I think when we look at something for example like psychiatric institutions that in the 1950s we had more people in incarcerated in psychiatric institutions per capita than the Soviet Union and um, it wasn't because Irish people were particularly mad it was because they were being used in the same way as in the Soviet Union as tools of repression tools of disappearance, of silencing, of um, for any number of reasons you could end up there. In many cases simply by the um, virtue of being a woman or by of having a child or of um, uh, a multitude of reasons. So, and in the psychiatric institutions there were many, there were much more people incarcerated in the psychiatric institutions than there were in the, in the industrial schools. Many, much, like, much more. So, you know, I suppose I, I see that as really a parallel stain on the state. You know, I see that as a, as a consistent stain on, on what the state is supposed to be. You know, when I look at any of the glories of the, you know, purported glories of the state or whatever we celebrate these anniversaries and commemorations and we're commemorating this and commemorating that. And for me, um, the, you know, we're not, you know, I think it's disproportionate and also in a way kind of offensive to, um, to commemorate these things and you know but when we know that there was a there is a parallel history of really very very grave so human rights abuses which have accompanied this progress um, it has accompanied our state this young state of you know since 1922 which at no point has been free of these abuses and still not we're still replicating them we're they're mutating into different um, forms now, it's mutated into direct provision, um, which I think is a stain on our contemporary reality, which is horrific, horrendous, and will be thought about as, in the future, as the Magdalene Laundries of our times, no, absolutely no question. There is simply no question. So, um, for me, there's nothing to celebrate. That's what I suppose, what I mean. There's something to remember, but there's nothing, I don't feel triumphalist, or I don't feel I don't feel patriotic in that way because I, I, I feel I don't think we've anything to be patriotic about. And of course, there are great moments of communal celebration in football or sport or great moments of social triumph like the marriage referendum or, or the abortion uh, referendum. That finally, you know, people could get con control over their bodies, which had been denied to them for since the beginning of the state. Um, you know, and, and all of these things which are very hard won, very important to achieve, but at the same time need to be balanced with um, the other things that have not been achieved, which are great and that which are still, I still think we have, we can't be complacent and, and think that, you know, we've achieved this, so now we've somehow 
I think we have a long road to go that we need to bring everyone with that progress. It can't be just reserved for certain people. When we think of, you know, people who don't have the benefit of any or any kind of progress because they're not considered even citizens. They're not, they, you know, if you don't have citizenship, you don't have the benefit of, the, of these citizen gains, unfortunately. If you're in direct provision, isolated in, uh, in the middle of nowhere with no transport, with no money, and with mental health conditions or with re-traumatized um, torture, um, or, and with, you know, all kinds of, uh, as we read on that Facebook page where I took the stuff, all kinds of sadistic, um, essentially sadistic practices being um, uh, being foisted upon people. I, I just don't think we have anything to celebrate, really. I think we will have some, we may have something to celebrate if we can figure out a way of, of moving beyond this sadistic society which we have created for ourselves. Um, can I, can I ask you about hope then, mm. because say within the production and Pasolini's film, you raise the question uh, of power and power structures yeah. in which these abuses can thrive. So if you can say that um, we work in cycles and that um, you can predict future behaviour by previous patterns mm -hmm. and, and then you talk about how, what humans can do to each other when all bets are off and, and that um, power is unchecked. Mm -hmm. So where is the hope then? I mean, I think the hope, and, and it's, it's, in the, it's in the production in a way at the end, you know, where, where in Pasolini's film you find the last, the last image of the film is the two young teenage soldiers who are dancing with each other and just banally talking about, you know, the last lines of the film are, what's your girlfriend's name? And he says, Margarita. That's, that's just the last lines of the film now. You know, up to that point, I think Pasolini's film is even more nihilistic than I'm allowing at the end of my production because I think, you know, you hear the drones of the bombers in the background. The place could be, you know, we don't know the film ends. It was the, is the place bombed? Have they been, are they um, assassinated by partisans or, or captured by, who knows? So uh, basically, I think Pasolini is really, um, he doesn't allow any optimism. It's very nihilistic. Um, but in my version, I think really what you have at the end with these two characters who dance, um, the two actors, you know, Thomas Collins and uh, Lauren Larkin, who are, I suppose, portraying these, symbolizing also, you know, this kind of um, both a working class and a traveler experience, you know. Um, um, and that we, I suppose, what we see on stage is that they are the last remaining characters at their desk, you know, they're the last remaining dubbers in a way, you know. And, um, and I think that's what I'm trying to present a little bit of uh, a hope that potentially that those two characters, they survive, you know, they, they, they transcend what you've already seen. They stood, they're still there. They're still, uh, and then they get up to dance. So they're, they're kind of, they, they're triumphing in a way over this. They haven't been defeated by, by what we've seen up to that point and that they're, they, they, they get up in this act of defiance, which is, you know, a dance is an act of defiance in a sense. And that they talk about, you know, and the final line is she asks him, what would you want to be when he grows up? And he says, I want to be free. So maybe, I suppose the suggestion is that maybe this, you know, this working class character, and this traveler character who were, I suppose they're, they're, they're together always during the production. They, they, they symbolize, they play the youth, they play the victims. And in a sense, in a wider sense, um, represent that, um, I suppose, the oppressed, um, by the kind of, I suppose, middle class um, system, which is um, which we see represented by the other actors. So I suppose the hope is in that hope, or that I suppose it's a question as well. 
is that are we going to honor that experience? Are we going to, um, how are we, are we going to perpetuate what we've seen up to that point? Or is there a glimmer of hope that potentially the oppressed can um, take, take charge and in a sense, um, become the, um, the, the, become the main characters on stage? Is that, is that possible in a historical sense? I hope very much hope it is. In the film, uh, the perpetrators have no human values. You, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but and then there is a reference from the Rhine Report about a Christian brother who forces a child to eat excrement mm -hmm. and later expresses remorse. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that remorse, to be honest, mm. because it's easier when the perpetrators mm. are monsters. So I think one of the things which I found, I suppose, impactful about the Ryan Report is the testimony in the Ryan Report from perpetrators, which I think is, is an aspect which we don't often focus on. And when we think of the Ryan Report, we, we have an idea of it as, as really a, a, all really all victim testimony. But there is, you know, there are specific instances in the report where you get glimpses of the psychology or you get the thinking um, or the personal testimony of the of the perpetrators. So I, I take some of that also and put into the mouths of some of the characters. And in that case, in the testimony that is real, where the, um, where the brother, I think it's a brother who, who expresses, you know, remorse for, um, for having committed that act. And, um, and also, I think there's another one later on where um, another brother, I th or possibly it's the same one, I just can't remember specifically where the brother expresses, you know, tries to give an explanation of, you know, I shouldn't be le have let, been left alone there. And, and these things which start to, I think, raise questions which are, are about the syst systemic failings of that system, not just like, because I think, you know, sometimes this, um, these, this kind of history of abuse is presented almost in a kind of, not unlike the sad as some kind of amoral, you know, completely amoral, um, actions which occurred outside of history by a few bad apples and, and I wanted to get away from that. Let's look at, like, because I think we need to look at what are the, what are the systemic, what were the systemic problems? Um, also on the, on the side, on the perpetrator side, what, what, that, that led to these, this, these conditions being, what were the conditions um, that led to this kind of atmosphere of impunity, of of um, societal deference, of abandonment. What, what were the values that really underpin all of these things that allow those things to happen? Now, and I think that some of those things are unchanged. That's why I think we get, that's why I think we become on shaky ground when we start thinking about the church and it was about the church and the church this and the church that. Fair enough. But doesn't the church doesn't explain what we're doing now in direct provision or, or, or what we're doing with homeless children or, or you know, the church has nothing to do with that. We, we now priding, pride ourselves on being a, you know, post-religious, almost post-religious progressive society. But so, so what's behind that? And I think essentially you're talking about similar values of um, a hatred of the poor, number one, a hatred of women, number two, um, you know, a misogynistic, patriarchal, capitalistic society. I think it's a, that's something I'm at pains to also try and make that connection in the film between faith and finance in a way, and that the, the market is really another kind of faith, which we have just exchanged the faith in religion and um, the moralistic faith, you know, for for faith in the market and we have become kind of enthralled to to kind of technological um, faith which is you know in technology and 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 um, 
and all that comes with it and how that is altering our own behavior and our own ethics and our own responsibility and our own... So again, I think we're in a position where we have outsourced our personal responsibility. Um, we've outsourced our own morality, really, to somebody, to an external um, nefarious force which doesn't give a shit about us and actually is out to destroy us in a way or is out at least to exploit us at the very least. What we're doing is we're working as free, you know, we're working as free labourers for um, data harvesting um, companies throughout the world. That's what we're all doing all day on social media. We're just creating um, data for people, uh, free, unpaid, um, which, which is very dark. So, so what you're talking about is, is culpability and, and complicity. Yeah. Um, you reference in the work Mary Raftery, a pioneering journalist, and, and you have that quote which resonates with me in that she says that once a group of people is isolated as being in some way inferior, the general population becomes less concerned about mm -hmm. how they are treated even in the face of evidence of cruelty and abuse. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what you're saying is that it's all about Ireland's history of institutional abuse and, it, and that it's not history, it hasn't gone mm -hmm. away. And it's worse than any other film. That complicity is still ongoing. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that quote particularly resonates with me because I think it's it's important it's very important when we're looking at that re or revising that history looking at it again and would i suppose with a kind of through a you know through a class lens because i think that what we what we see is that in a lot of those institutions and still now that the vast majority of people in the historical institutions were poor the vast majority of people in prison in uh, family hubs in direct provision are poor vulnerable uh, marginalized people and that is the same. We have not, the translation hasn't evolved. They're the same kind. It's just but possibly different circumstances, you know, slightly different variations in economic circumstance or, or whatever the conditions may be. But essentially, you're talking about a, 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 a system, a kind of a system of values which are really a middle, a system of middle class values. The underbelly of that is a, is you know an underclass of very vulnerable marginalised people who are being lorded over by another, which is essentially the um, the, the essential archetypal narrative of the film, which seems in a way too simplistic, but in a way is still true. Um, when you look at the work, and then you think of the 10 years that you've been thinking about and making mm. the work. Is there a respite from the work now that it's on stage? I suppose there is a kind of, it's a bit of a cliched word, but there is a kind of catharsis, I suppose, because a lot of it is, and I think for Pasolini as well, the film was very personal. You know, for him, that nihilism was really quite personal because he had, you know, some of his other films, particularly around sexuality, have been so exuberant, you know, The Thousand and One Nights, and these were celebrations of exuberant kind of pre-Christian sexuality and, and uh, human vitality, which, which he saw as being essentially annihilated by capitalism. And he saw the film, you know, which is nominally about the fascist period, uh, he saw it really as an allegory of consumerism because he said that he believed that the new fascism, what he called the new fascism of consumerism, was worse than classical fascism because it, fascism had never managed to completely annihilate people culturally in the same way. Um, when, we, when we look at dialects, for example, in Italy, which is a big, always a big um, concern of Pasolini's, but he saw dialect really as a kind of symbol of, of something which was destroyed by consumerism. And I think, you know, it's just a fact of Italian history that until television really very, very few Italians spoke Italian, what we consider Italian, which is 
standard Italian now is it was it was taken from the Florentine dialect of of Boccaccio Dante Petrarch, which became the national language. But there, there are many many other regional languages in Italy which which are called dialects and a misnomer, but but they are essentially languages. And he saw them really as the repositories of incredible uh, of an incredible cultural knowledge, like as if we were you know we can see that in our own. Uh, history with the Irish language, you know, an incredible wealth of civilization, of values, of, of um, art, of poetry, of, of way of being, which is then uh, taken away and removed and we're left with a skeleton, kind of um, alien skeleton, which we, which we inhabit, which, but we lose touch with what, uh, what flowers mean, what, what does the word mean for that street, we don't know where we are essentially which is, sounds metaphorical or poetic, but it's actually true. You know, we look at a street sign, and we don't know what it means. It's, it's awful. And he saw that as, he saw that kind of idea really in the, in the destruction of, di of dialect, Italian dialects and particularly agrarian peasant culture, which he thought was so rich and he believed was really so wonderful, but that it was traded in. It was thrown in the bin really with um, in a very short period of time of massive industrialization, in the, particularly in the 60s in Italy, when especially, and a lot of people from the south had to migrate to the north, southern communities were, were decimated, the culture was, you know, the places were left bereft. Like Ireland after the famine, or, 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 in, or even in, in the 60s ourselves, where people, you know, whole areas were left bereft of music, bereft of people, bereft of the language. And so he saw that as a really great tragedy. And I think in, in, in Salo, what you get actually is you don't get any dialect. There's not even, I don't think even one word. He said, that's over now. It's, it's now that's been, you know, that the end game has happened. It's the final, it's done. It's a fait accompli. We've been colonized. We've been brainwashed by consumer culture. It's already happened. And I suppose he saw that in a very nihilistic way. I, I can't imagine that even, I can't imagine how nihilistic he would be if he saw what actually happened in reality, which is much worse than he could have predicted in terms of the colonization of daily life by um, consumer capitalism, by social media, by um, all of the, the kind of simulacrum of shite which, we, which we're faced with on a daily basis. I think if he, he, he couldn't have predicted that it would even have been so bad or so totalitarian actually. Worse, um, as he says, worse than fascism. Worse consumerism than fascism, has yeah. done more damage. Pasolini might take that consumerism renders everyone a commodity, that everyone can be bought or sold. Mm -hmm. What idea are you selling and what do you want from the audience? I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm selling an idea really. I'm, I'm not selling anything really. I think that and that's why it was important for me that this, that this project would happen here in a publicly funded theatre, which is not, it has no essentially commercial raison d'etre. And I think that was very, that's very important for a project like this. That at no time, you know, and this is a testament to really and um, to the Abbey for allowing me to make this project with no preconditions, with the no, you know, no, no um, imperatives to change what I was doing or to dilute what I'm doing or to to pander to any kind of audience or you know, I just it was really about um, not to sanitize it. not and not to sanitize what with either the film or what I wanted to what I wanted to tease out with the with the juxtaposition. So I think. I mean, what Pasolini really, I think what he essentially wanted to make was an uncommodifiable work, which I think has been proven by his work. You know, and, and I, I, th I think maybe even in the last days, some of the reactions to the, to the production, we see that it's not an easy commodifiable production either. 
there aren't easy sound bites, there aren't easy um, quotes you can get out and put on the poster or easy gifts you can make from audience reactions. That's a very divisive. Um, I think if it wasn't divisive, I would have failed because I wouldn't have tra I wouldn't have successfully fa or faithfully transposed the, the spirit of what Pasolini was going for. If I tra if I sanitized it into something which everyone was going to think is oh we can all congratulate ourselves that we that we made great art or that we are so virtuous that we um, we look at all this thing and go well now isn't everything great you know I suppose that that's what I'm resisting and I suppose when you when you put that in front of people it's going to be people are going to be resistant to it or are going to be so, I suppose, from my point of view, I'm not interested in theatre as light entertainment or as a, an easy night out or a experience, the exp part of the experience economy for a kind of, let's go for an early bird and then go and have a look at a nice um, thing about Italy. It's, it's, uh, I want people to be challenged because I don't see the point otherwise. I don't see the point of doing it. There's been you know, I don't see the point of, of doing the same show that's been done loads of times or the same. I can. It's easy. It's easy to make something that people, everyone's going to like. It's media, mediocrity is the easiest thing to achieve, but to actually, to actually, to really, because I think in this day and age, really, truth is the most subversive, or or honesty. Not truth is a big. You know, sounds like a big concept that I have the truth or some kind of evangelist. I, I don't know. I, I don't have a clue. And most of the time, I'm confused or anxious or depressed or numbed and. As I'm tired of, of or unable to express anything, but I suppose over a long time being able to just try and get a handle on what this is about for myself and where do I fit in as a middle class person growing up in the late 70s, 80s. I'm also involved. There's blood on my hands also. You know, I went to a Catholic school, a Catholic middle class school where, um, you know, where many people were excluded from by, by definition, where which are which produced you know, many of the people who are running the country right now, and um, I'm in it. And we're, you know, we, I suppose sometimes we like to think of the art art world or or the arts as kind of, you know, separate or, or different from these things. And I think it's these class, these class um, and sectarian racist divisions are equally as a, an element of our own world. And I think it's, I'm also saying, I'm not saying, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm indicting myself in there too as a middle class person and as an artist and saying, well, what, what are we doing really when we read out this list of these um, countless thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean? What the fuck did I do about it? What did anyone else do about it? Or what am I going to do about it? And I don't have an easy answer. I have a, I have a feeling of sadness, a feeling of disappointment, a feeling of uh, complete failure. And maybe that's all I can have as, a, as an honest response. When people speak just honestly and clearly it's it's very subversive. I don't even think you, you'd be allowed on the radio even speaking real honesty because it's it would probably be libelous or scandalous. And it is, and I think that's essentially, hopefully, what, what I want to leave people with with the with the um, with this production. It's not you know, although it's extreme content. I hope that my production is calm, it's measured. You know, it's never it's not very dramatic in many ways. It's it's really just. We're never out, we're in the theatre doing it. There's never any kind of alternative. We're in some place. We're just right here, right now, taking stock of this stuff. You're looking at me, I'm the actor, I'm looking at you. Here we are. This is the real material. There's the film. We're all aware we're here. We're all aware we can walk out if we want. We can leave, we can't leave. And we take it from there. That's really what I'm hoping for.
As a final question, because we can, we can hear the drums there, the rabble. Um, if we were to leap forward in time and we got to look back at a review of Dylan Ty's Pasolini's Salo Redubbed at the Peacock Theatre as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival 2019, what would you like that review to capture about the production, the endeavour of it and what it achieved? I think it would, it would, I'd like it to be seen, hopefully within a wider context of, um, of a recontextualization of institutionalized thinking, I would say institutionalized thinking rather than, you know, just a, a history of institutional abuse, because I think we need to move beyond kind of, you know, looking at specific institutions or specific places. I think it distracts us from really what we're talking about, which is, which is how we can look, how we can start applying it to today is, is um, thinking of it in terms of institutional an institutional mindset or belief system, as I was saying that I think many of the thing, the conditions that gave rise to that abuse uh, being able to happen in the past are still present. You know the way in which we choose to to um, treat, denigrate, um, and warehouse the poor is is you know we, we, there we. Um, uh, we're you know we're still active participation participants in that in that system so I would, but I would so so I hope I would hope that it might in some small way contribute to that reappraisal of that history and and see it I, I suppose the the shifting of a consciousness away from seeing this this thing as history it's not history for anybody who has experienced it it's not history for anybody who is still fighting the state for their records for their birth cert for their um, information about them, their siblings who were human trafficked or, or whatever it may be, or where their bodies are buried or who they were even in the graves or all of these questions which are still open. I would hope that, you know, we, it was like, well, maybe that um, on some small level that, that, that can help. I, I don't think it's any one thing, I, I, you know, it's, it can only be a kind of cultural, I suppose like we saw with the marriage referendum or for you know, a accumulation of small acts of truth, of defiance, and I think maybe that's what any cultural shift is, is a, is a accumulation of small human uh, gestures from single people or from people or small groups who say, I've had enough of that and I'm going to just stand up and say, I don't agree with that. And maybe someone else stands up and says, I don't agree with that or, and this was my truth and the way I see it and hopefully, and then perhaps they begin to coagulate and um, lead us to, I suppose, where we got to in with the with the marriage referendum, for example, which nobody could have imagined, nobody, and it was seismic. But but I think was, you know, when you trace the the genealogy of that movement, started very small, with a few few dissenting voices, and a large group of very um, marginalised, um, fr uh, frightened people who were feared, not frightened, frightened. I mean, feared with good reason, a fear of, of um, violence against them and their, their identity and their being. Um, so I hope that this can contribute to that re, re, rebooting of, uh, as I think it was on a tweet, uh, Ali White actually said, it was, you know, let's reboot humanity. So hopefully, you, know, like you know, so hopefully it can, it can contribute to a resistance, to a rebooting of our, of our humanity, not humanity in general, our humanity which I think is getting lost. We're trading it in for, for, very sh for, a quick, for a quick book, you know, for a quick benefit, for a quick, for a quick flurry. You know, we're um, trading in our deepest, if 
values as human beings when we, when we ignore people dying in the Mediterranean or we ignore people in direct provision or, or um, you know, uh, travelers who are still being, you know, denied accommodation or whatever it may be. We're, we're, we are trading in our own dignity, actually. We, we, don't, we end up with none. So I think um, hopefully, hopefully what I can, can do in some small way is, is just, I suppose, promote a kind of um, dignified, dignified um, attitude to, to our surroundings, to our own history and to the people which we share this country with who we still don't see because they're, they're um, hidden away. They're isolated. They're vulnerable. Isolated and vulnerable, and they're very deliberately so, so that we don't see them and that we can't dance with them.